Well, good to be with you guys this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm the other one of the pastors here. Um, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. This summer, we've been going through a series called uh, Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And uh, my heart in, in our time during this series, um, I think we just, we grow up uh, hearing stories. Maybe we go to church and hear them. Maybe you hear them referentially. Maybe you saw like Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat one time on Broadway, or there's all these different kinds of ways that we uh, hear and see the stories throughout the Bible. And my heart in taking us through that this summer is to help kind of course correct um, the point of all of that. And at River City, we believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Every page is about him, and it's about the gospel, but it's about his gospel, it's about his good news. And so my heart in our time together this summer has just simply been, and I want us to see those stories for what they really are, for what they really point to. They're not just like stories with a moral or a good principle at the end, but they're stories that point us towards Jesus, the best news of all. And so that's my heart as we've studied this week. This week, our passage is probably one of the single most important stories that points just obviously towards the gospel in all the Old Testament. There is no other passage that, that I can think of that is referenced um, more abundantly throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. Um, there's no passage that the Bible itself invites us to see as more about Jesus, more to interpret more Christocentrically than any other. This morning, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 13 and 14, taking a look at the crossing of the Red Sea. I trust, my, my hope this morning, as we see God deliver his people out of uh, bondage and slavery in Egypt, man, I trust that, we, that God would help show us how it all is about Jesus, and that it would be good news to us as we do that. So let me pray. We'll dive into God's word, and uh, man, it's a good one this morning. So, God, thanks for your word. We're so grateful for you and for our time together. God, just pray that you'd give us insights that we'd see you most of all. God, help us see the truth about who you are and all that you've done. And God, and, um, gosh, pray you'd fill me with your spirits that I have had like anything valuable to offer us and bring, bring this morning. So trust that you do that all for your good and for our good and for your glory, God. Amen. Amen. Um, Alcatraz was uh, thought to be an inescapable prison. And uh, for the 29 years that it was uh, located as a federal prison. That's, that's kind of how people thought it was. It was located on this island, surrounded by the frigid waters and treacherous ocean currents of the San Francisco Bay. And over the 29 years that it was uh, a federal prison, there was, uh, um, there was uh, 14 escape attempts by, made by 29 prisoners in all. And the official record is that none of them were successful. Some people were captured. Some people were just shot. Some people drowned trying to swim off the island. One guy even made it all the way across the island only to get immediately arrested right when he got there. It was just like the ultimate downer, right? But in the summer of 1962, three men vanished themselves off the island prison of Alcatraz, never to be heard from again. One of those men was a guy named Frank Morris, and Frank Morris was a brilliant man. He actually, uh, records indicate that he ranked within the top 2% of IQ scores in the nation. It turns out he had masterminded this incredibly intricate and highly complex, highly detailed plan uh, to kind of maneuver his escape with him and these two other guys. And the FBI investigated like just hundreds of leads, nothing not even, no, nothing, right? And in the end, uh, in 1979, they closed the case and they basically concluded that there's just no possible way they could have made it. And although the FBI case is closed, the U.S. Marshals case remains open and those, those three guys are still on the wanted list. And so the mystery of the escape of these guys from, from the, uh, the uh, island prison of Alcatraz, it spawned like, it just... Tons of movies and books and stories and all this kind of stuff. Because let's just be honest, we love a good escape story, right? That's why there's like 7,000 heist movies, right? We just love the, the thrill of that. And uh, our story this morning is an escape story as well. 
And like that infamous escape from the island of Alcatraz, this one seemed absolutely impossible. The Israelites will see they're, they've been in slavery and bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. It certainly seemed like an impossible escape for them. But unlike that Alcatraz escape, it wasn't the result of careful planning. It wasn't the result of execution of this brilliant criminal mastermind. In fact, this story could not be more different than the escape story from Alcatraz. If you are planning an escape, you copy zero of the elements of this story. None of these ideas make it into your plan. None of them, not even remotely. Frank Morris, if he looks at this plan, he thinks just exactly what we're supposed to think. That was a miracle. There's no way this should have worked. Nothing about this plan makes any sense. It's a terrible, terrible plan. See, nothing about the escape story makes sense. It's not the results of anyone's careful planning or anyone's skillful execution or anyone's brilliant ingenuity except God's. And that is the whole point of the story. One of the preeminent themes throughout all of the Bible is that God is God's jealous of his glory. He is jealously pursuing it. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 42, and the passage read, I am the Lord, that's my name. I will yield my glory to no one else. He wants to get all of the credit. He wants all of the praise. He wants all of the honor. He wants all of the glory. And when you create everything from nothing, you get that. You deserve that. Nobody else deserves it. Even a brief skim of our story this morning reveals that God's grand purpose in everything he does is to display his glory. When God delivered his people out of Egypt, he did it in a way that guaranteed that he was the only one who could get any of the credit for doing it. This morning, as we study, we're going to see this. God delivers his people out of bondage so that his glory would be made known to them, and through them. God explicitly in our story, you'll see, he tells Moses three times the reason he's doing everything that he's doing, the reason everything is happening, he's just abundantly explicit. He says, I'm doing it for my glory. I'm doing it to gain glory for me. It's why he's delivering his people. It's how he's doing it. It's where he's doing it. All of it is for him. It's for his glory. And so let's take a look at our text. I want to show you five things that happen. Five ways that God's deliverance of his people make his glory known to them and through them. So let's read, and then we'll talk about it, okay? We're in Exodus. Kind of a long passage this morning. Bear with me. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, through, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road towards the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. And he said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up out of this place. And after leaving Succoth, they uh, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And by the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of the fire by night left its place in front of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near um, Piharath. Welcome to Migdal and by the sea. And they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he'll pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians, and they'll know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. And when the king of Egypt told, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. And they said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. That's funny, by the way, slavery, service, anyways. Um, so he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with them and he took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers in all of them. And the Lord hardened his heart, the king of Pharaoh of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. 
And when the Egyptians, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped at the, at the sea near Piharoth, opposite of Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh approached the Israelites, looked up, and they were, there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done um, to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the desert. You can sense their sassiness, right, in the tone. And so Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord that he'll bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they'll go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved in front of them and stood behind them, and coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near it all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all night long the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire in the cloud and, in, and the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion." And he jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters would flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. And the water flowed back, and it covered the chariots and the horsemen. And the entire army of Pharaoh that had been following the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And the Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Man, that's an incredible story. And I want us to see as we study it five ways that the story shows us that God he delivers his people out of bondage so that they would know his glory and that he would make it known through them. The first thing, God delivers his people out of bondage kindly. The passage shows the kindness of God and his deliverance in a ton of different ways, but the first way is this. In, in chapter 13, verse 17, the very beginning, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though, they, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them the long way around by the Red Sea. God knew even though they had just gotten out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, God knew that if they faced war on their journey, they would just walk right back into their chains. And so God kindly takes them the long way around. The harder way, the more difficult way, he takes them the long way, and it's his kindness to them. Secondly, God gives them a constant reminder of a visual that he's with them. There's this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And you'd think they had just witnessed these 10 miraculous plagues, which were the reason that Pharaoh let them go in the beginning. And you think, what more, re like, what else do they need to, like, trust that God is with them? You'd think that they would seen everything they needed to see to trust God and follow Moses. But God's giving them yet another sign, another way to see him, to look for him. 
I think it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and just be like almost offended at their pitiful like lack of faith and their need to be kind of like handheld like every three centimeters down the road, right? But God's not offended with them. He's kind towards them and he gives them this visual, this powerful visual of his presence with them that they can always look and see in the day or in the night. He wants them to know he's with them. Why? God does it because he wants his people to see his glory, but he wants them to see it as good news. He's the one who's rescuing them. He's the one who's leading them. He's the one who's guiding it, but he's doing it for their good. He's doing it kindly. He's doing it kindly so that his glorious deliverance of them would be good news to them rather than a new oppression. And God's deliverance of his people out of bondage is not just kind, it's faithful as well. In verse 19, it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Let's just be honest. If you're making a, like a midnight escape out of slavery, you don't think, let's go dig up some bones, bring those with us. That's a great idea. So there's got to be something important going on there, right? Just a few weeks ago, we studied the story of Joseph, right? And at the very end of that story, Joseph tells his brothers, one day God's going to come, he's going to rescue us all. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God told Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham, he said, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, and I'll punish the nation that uh, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. See, Joseph had been told that his descendants would become slaves in Egypt, but he was also, he had faith that God would rescue them. In Hebrews chapter eleven twenty-two says this, by faith. Joseph spoke, about, spoke at, at the end of his life about the exodus of the Israelites, uh, of their exodus out of Egypt, and he gave instructions about his bones. See, Joseph believed that God was faithful. He believed that God would keep his promises, and in exodus, God proves he's faithful. God's glory is revealed to his people in both telling them what the future would hold and in keeping his promises to rescue them from the future he told them they would be in. It's God's faithful deliverance of his people that makes his glory known to them. And while God's kind and faithful deliverance of his people makes his glory known to them, it's his gracious deliverance that makes his glory known through them. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. By definition, grace is getting something you do not deserve. The Israelites do not deserve anything from God, let alone to be rescued by him. There's nothing about their patriarch Abraham uh, that merited God choosing him, that merited them being God's people. In fact, when Andy preached a few weeks ago, he said, the only thing that is profound about Abraham is that there's nothing profound about him. The Israelites are not especially faithful or bold. They are not especially honest or good or loving. In fact, throughout the Bible, we see that they excel at doing all of the wrong things. There's nothing about them that deserves saving. Even here in our passage, literally days after miraculously being set free from slavery, being led by a giant pillar of fire down the road... As soon as they see Pharaoh's army approaching, it says they're terrified and they cry out to the Lord. And that cry out to the Lord, that's not like a, oh, God, we see this great foe. We trust you. Please help us. No, it's more like the kind of uh, like cry out to the Lord, like right before you get in a car accident. And you're like, God, help, right? And it's mostly totally helplessness and fear and maybe like a tint, like just the smallest, tiniest amount of faith, Right? It's fear. It's not faith that's driving them to cry out to the Lord. How do I know that? Well, right before that, it says they're terrified. And let's read the next few verses. Tell me if this looks like faith, right? Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone in Egypt. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to just stay there than die in the desert, right? In light of everything God has just done, in light of the ten plagues by which he set them free with, in light of all of those miracles, in light of their deliverance, 
God's people's response is to doubt him and mock Moses, the guy who's leading them. They say to Moses, if you wanted us to die, we could have just stayed in Egypt. I don't know if you saw all the pyramids. If there's one thing they're good at, it's building graves. They have enough. We could have just stayed and died there, right? But no, you had to go set us free and lead us out of slavery so we could die in Egypt. They're just like mock, like the cynicalness. It's just incredible. These people do not deserve to get saved. They are faithless. They are ungrateful. They are forgetful. They are just a cynical train wreck. And it wasn't on their best day that God decided to save them. It was in the midst of their worst one. (laughs) They didn't deserve God's deliverance. They were shown immense grace. And in the saving of a people who did not deserve saving, God gets glory through his people. If if I was God, I'm just being honest, if I was God, I would have been, fine, you want Egypt? Go for it. Here you go. Here's a big chariot sandwich. I topped it with some spears. Have a good lunch, right? I'm out. After all of that, I would have been like, no, I'm done with you, right? But that's not how God responds to his people. He speaks to them through Moses. He says, don't be afraid. Just watch. See how the Lord will deliver you. He will fight for you. And God tells Moses in verse 15, he says, let's go. I got something I need everybody to see. Stretch out your arms over the water. And it leads us to the fourth way that God's deliverance of his people out of bondage makes his glory known to them and through them. He delivers his people sovereignly. A sovereign is someone who rules with supreme power and authority, and there is no one with more power and more authority than God. God's sovereignty over all things is on full display throughout the passage. God is the one who in verse 1 tells the Israelites to camp at an inexplainably terrible strategic place to camp. God is the one who in verse 4 and in verse 17 hardens Pharaoh's hearts so that he will change his mind and pursue the Israelites even into a giant wall of ocean. God's the one who in verse 16, the climax of the story, tells, uh, tells Moses to stretch out his arms and he parts the Red Sea in front of them. And in verse 9, God's the one who protects his people with a cloud while he's parting the sea all night for them. And in verse 24, God is the one who throws Pharaoh's army into confusion and jams the wheels of their chariots. And God is the one who in verse verse 28 swallowed up the entire army of Pharaoh in the path that he had just saved his people through. Do you see it? God's deliverance of his people could only have been because of him. Going back as far as the 4th century, people have been trying to offer explanations as to what really happened here. Well, maybe it was just like really shallow water and they just kind of like, it got real windy and there was a spot and they just kind of waded through, right? Or maybe there was some other thing. Maybe it wasn't really the Red Sea. Maybe it was some other totally different location or maybe it was all these different kind of things. The whole chapter is full of divine activity. If you're trying to explain that away, you just gotta just gotta put an X over the whole story and just chuck that one, right? Because it's full of God's activity that can only be explained by Him, and that is at the very point of the entire story. At every part of the story, God's the one doing the acting. He is the one doing the changing. He's the one doing the saving. It could only have been him who saved. Even the Egyptians know that. Verse 25, they say, let's get out of here. The Lord is fighting for them. Let's roll. And like Moses said, it was God who was fighting for his people. All they needed to do was be still. God did not need their help. He did not need their faith. He did not need their support. He was enough in and of himself to save them. They did nothing to save themselves. It was the Lord who saved his people that day. Just him, only him, all him. And he did it that way so that his people would see his glory. They would know it. He wanted them to see and experience it. 
Aaron and I have countless stories about uh, how this church got started and ways that are only describable by God deciding to do something. From the people that are a part of this story to like many, many thousands of dollars coming in totally unexplainably. Remember, one Sunday we were at church and I was preaching and I said, we're about $12,000 short for meeting our budget. To, to start the church, there was a lady I've never met in my entire life who walked up to me after the service and she said, I'll have a check to you in the mail on Monday for that. I, don't even, I didn't even know her name. That stuff can only be explained by God's doing it. And why does he do that kind of stuff? God does that stuff so that we'd see his glory, that we'd know it was only him who could have done it. I'm not that good of a preacher, Right? Nobody just comes up to me and is like, here's $12,000, go for it. That's God doing that. And he does that in ways that we get to see so that we would see his glory, so that it would be good news to us. But God's delivered the Israelites. He showed them his glory, not just for them. The passage, a couple of times it says, God did it so that the, the Egyptians would know that he's the Lord, that he'd get glory in and through them. All the way back, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses comes to the Pharaoh and he says, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, he just says, um, Who is he? Who is the Lord that I should let your people go? No. No, 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 no. If he's so powerful, why are all of his people my slaves? That's the Pharaoh's response, Right? He's just like, no, I don't, I don't know this God of yours. I'm not listening to you. But God would show Pharaoh who the real king was, wouldn't he? And he would show Pharaoh who the true God was. And he would do it in the way that he delivered his people. One commentator writes about the climax of the story. It's ironic that the Egyptians were defeated at daybreak. Because that's when their sun god was supposedly rising in the east. But their gods could not save them, nor, nor could Pharaoh, who, even though he was revered as a god, could not save them. You can only imagine what the Pharaoh is thinking as the waters of the ocean are flooding back over him. It was the Lord. I should have let them go. <laughs> I needed to know him. See, all the glory of that victory, it can only go to God. Only he could have planned that escape. And so the story closes with the Israelites on the other side of the sea and the Egyptians under it. And the final picture we have about God's deliverance of his people out of bondage is that it was finished. It was complete. It was done it was finished. It was over. God tells Moses to stretch out his hands over the water once more, and the waters flow back over the Egyptians, covering them. The Egyptians they saw that day, they would never see again, just like Moses said. The chapter of their lives was closed and done. There was no more slavery, no more bondage. God's people were free. They were actually free. There'd be no more slave masters coming to call. They'd been delivered out of bondage so that God's glory would be made known to them. But God's gracious work wasn't done because the story of the rest of the Bible is that God is making his glory known through them. It's usually at this point in the sermon that uh, usually it goes something like this. So what are your Red Sea moments? What are the moments in your life where that seem inescapable, that seem really hard, and you need God to deliver you out of from. And that's not where we're going this morning. Um, because mostly that misses the entire point of the story. Don't get me wrong. God wants to walk with us through difficult situation. He wants to walk with us, and we, he wants to, us to trust him. He wants us to rely on him. That is absolutely true, but it's just not the point. If that's all the passage is about, 
then we miss the gospel. We miss Jesus on every page. We miss the real end to which the passage is pointing. We miss the good news. One commentator writes this. He says, Israel's passage through the sea is not primarily intended to teach us what to do when we are in spiritual trouble any more than it serves as a how-to guide on what to do when you come near a large body of water. Rather, it's meant to teach us about um, the way that God comes to save The only Red Sea experience that really matters is the one that Jesus had when he passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning and you've put your hope in him, you trust his work on the cross to be the thing that makes you right with God, then you have already had your Exodus moment. You've already had it. The story's already true. You were caught between the slave master of your sin and the ocean of God's just judgment. And it's through faith in Jesus that God parted the water so that you would walk through. And all that remains for us is what remains for the Israelites by faith to take hold of it. To walk through the path that God had opened for them. You see, Exodus tells the story of Israel's redemption. But we're invited to read it as the story of ours as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul and countless other places, Apostle Paul says it this way, these things occurred, he's referencing this passage, right? He says, these things occurred as examples to us. Our ancestors, when they passed through the sea, they were baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Jesus. Paul is saying the account of God's glorious deliverance of his people at the Red Sea, that actually happened. It's not just a story. It really happened. And it didn't just happen for them. It happened for you and for me. See, the story of the Red Sea crossing is indeed a great escape, but it's more than that. It's an example. It's a foreshadowing of the greatest escape of all. It's a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance of God's people. As one commentator writes, Paul's making a connection between the Exodus and between baptism. For the Israelites, passing through the Red Sea was a type of baptism, and thus it was a forecast, a a foreshadowing of our final deliverance in Christ. And once we were enslaved to the Egypt of sin, now we've been set free in Christ. That pattern that we saw, those five ways that God's deliverance of his people brings about his glory to them and through them, That becomes a pattern for the way that God saves or the way that he delivers throughout the Bible and even now. That becomes a pattern because we are in bondage too, just like the Israelites were. We are enslaved to sin. And in Exodus 14, it's a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus who would be our deliverer. And God's deliverance of us is kind. Romans chapter 2 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's deliverance of us was faithful. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised that one day, the, one day the seed would come that would crush the head of Satan and sin and death and restore all things. And in Jesus, he kept that promise. God's deliverance of us is gracious. We do not deserve God's salvation. We do not deserve his deliverance. We are just like the Israelites. We are ungrateful and unfaithful and forgetful all the time. It wasn't on our best day that God deemed us worthy. It was in the midst of our rebellion. Romans chapter 5 says that it was while you were enemies, Christ died for you. I think it's easier for us to think that God will deliver us when we make ourselves more deliverable, right? Or more enticing to deliver. It just misses the whole point. God wants all the glory. He does everything he has ever done. He does everything he will ever do for his glory. And he gets the most glory by saving the people who are the most unworthy of saving. That's such good news. Because there's nothing about us that's worth saving. Because God is jealous for his glory. It means the gospel can be good news for us. Ephesians 2 It says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your work. So that you wouldn't boast. So that there is nothing about your story that deserves or merits his grace. 
so that he gets all the credit for doing all of it. God's deliverance of us is sovereign as well. We are hopelessly and helplessly in need of saving. We cannot save ourselves. We are stuck between our slave master's sin and the ocean of God's just judgment in opposition of that. And you and I, we need to hear the same words that Moses spoke to the Israelites. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be quiet. In Hebrew, those words... They get translated, be still, but in Hebrew, they're a lot stronger than that. It's more like, shut up. Shut your mouths, sit down, and do nothing. Because if you try to help with this, you're going to jack it up, just like you've messed up everything else. So sit down and watch the Lord as he delivers you. You see, it's his power that saves, not yours. You do nothing God does everything. That's good news. Because if we needed to do everything, we would mess it up every time. And so Jesus comes and he saves us just like he said, save the Israelites. And we lay hold of it. We lay hold of his deliverance, of his salvation by faith. Hebrews 11.29 says this, By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And just lest we think it was the quality of their faith that saved them, the passage goes on to say, But the Egyptians, when they walked through the sea, were swallowed up and drowned by it. Why? Why does it say that? Because it is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. A lot of times what happens is we say, yeah, God, God, salvation, it's by grace, but, but I've really got to believe. I've really got to just believe enough. I've really just got to trust enough. Just Tim Keller, he just so helpfully just points out, he says, don't do that. Doubtless there would have been many who walked through the water second-guessing every step in fear, inching forward. Others maybe boldly or triumphantly walked, maybe ran or jogged or skipped over the dry land, praising God and celebrating their great escape together, but they all crossed over the same. Individual Israelites, he says, they had different qualities of faith, but they were equally saved. They were equally delivered. Why? Because you're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved by the quality of the object of your faith. The Redeemer, the God who is fighting for you. Everything about the whole story says grace, grace, grace. Tim Keller goes on to say, Christianity is unique. All other religions are built on the premise that step by step we build a bridge over the waters of the chaos of our life. We put down a pylon and then we build out to that and we put down the next one and we build out to that. But Christianity is altogether different because instead of building our own bridge, we trust the bridge that's already been built for us. Was it the measure of Joseph's faith that ultimately led Israel's people into deliverance? No. Was it the quality of the Israelites' faith in God that got them through the Red Sea? No. It was the object of their faith. It was God himself. It's not the quality of our faith. It's about the quality of the Savior. And Jesus is incredible. His deliverance of us is kind. It's faithful. It's gracious. It's sovereign. And his deliverance of us is complete. That picture at the end of the story of Moses stretching out his hands and the waters flowing back over, it's a, it's, it was meant for the Israelites to be a picture of a spiritual truth that was happening. God has said, you're out to see, look behind you, watch this, done, finished, over, what you saw is gone. You are free, it's done, it's over, no more slavery, run, walk in your freedom. The Apostle Paul, when he references baptism, he's painting a picture of what baptism represents. I love getting to baptize people, it's really fun, right? You say, buried with him in his death, and you dunk him under the water, right? And then you say, raised with him in newness of life, and you raise him up, and the waters flow back where they used to be. 
when you come up out of the water, you're the same person. No magic has happened. But it's a picture of the old you being washed away and swept under the waters. Gone, finished, done. The Israelites looked back and their past was gone. It was over, it was done, it was finished. And that's true of God's deliverance of us through Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Romans 8, verse 1. Now therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I love this. Hebrews chapter 1. The Son, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power after he had made purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of God the majesty in heaven why he sat down because his work was done you sit down when your work is finished but although the Israelites were free and their salvation was complete if you keep reading Exodus um, you see that they don't really live like they're free Even in our story, they don't really live like they're free. Before the waters have even had time to settle back down, they're already turning from God and forgetting him and running from him. They're trusting other things. They're forgetting all that he had done. And so do we. All the time we run back to our old slave master and sin. We forget God's deliverance and we live as though we're not free. Even though we are objectively free, subjectively we're still in bondage. But the gospel, the ultimate picture of God's great glory is big enough to save us even from that. Because the gospel is past. It has saved us from the penalty of sin. And the gospel is present. It is saving us ongoingly from the power of sin. And the gospel is future. One day it will save us from the presence of sin altogether. And if you've put your trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin, your rebellion from God, then you are justified. You are declared right with him. And you've been delivered. And you're no longer a slave to sin. And right now you live in the in-between. And by God's power, the gospel is ongoingly saving you from the power of sin. Day by day, Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel gets us out of bondage to sin, but that bondage has layers. You know what happened uh, the day after the Emancipation Proclamation went out? Thousands of slaves the next day went back to doing the exact same thing they did the day before. Because they couldn't imagine a freedom that was any different than the one they had. They were free, but they didn't know how to live in their freedom. They didn't believe that they were really free, and we're like that too. So often what happens is that we just tell ourselves we need to try harder to be free. Just, I want to bring us back to the story. There's zero elements of the story that say try harder to be free. In fact, they say the exact opposite. Moses says, Shut up. Shut your mouth and sit down. Watch the Lord deliver you. And then by faith, lay hold of it. You don't do anything. He's saying it's not about trying harder to be free. It's about asking God to show you, to reveal to you the truth about the freedom you already have. I always try to listen to at least one sermon whenever I preach, not to cheat, uh, but because I want God's word preached into my heart just as I seek to preach it into you guys. And um, This week there was one pastor who just said something so helpful, something my heart really needed to hear. In verse 15, when God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. God is not saying, don't ask me for help. He's not saying, "Don't, don't come to me. He's saying, look what's in front of you. Walk in the freedom I'm making for you. Walk in the freedom that I'm providing for you. He said, most of the time Christians are just like the Israelites on the beach who are waiting for a freedom they've already been given. We're carrying around broken chains. That just really hit me because I think that's true of me all the time. I am free, but I keep asking for freedom 
Instead of asking for something I already have, I need to be asking God to remind me of what's already true. Maybe like me, sometimes you struggle with worry. I do that sometimes, but maybe the way that you struggle with worry is far, far more, uh, far different than mine. Mine seems like there are bursts of moments of it, but maybe yours feels like it's ongoing, like it just doesn't stop, like you just can't get out of this anxiety that's there. And you keep asking God to help you trust him, to keep you from worrying, but, the, but you keep failing. And when you pray, you say, God, I'm so sorry I keep worrying. I'll do better next time. I'll try harder to trust you next time. But instead, what we need to be praying is, God, I know you've already set me free from worry, from fear. On the cross, you proved that you were good. And in rising from the dead, you proved that in every possible situation, you were in control. God, for some reason, I don't believe that. For some reason, although I know that that's true, I I can't put it in my heart. God, by your grace, cause me to believe what's true. Fill my heart with that truth, with that belief, that the battle is already over, that you have won. I think one of the things that's so, is such good news to the story about me is that God shows the Israelites his deliverance. He shows them his glory. He shows them his power before they have faith in him. Isn't that good news to you? God's not waiting. Oh yeah, if you just have enough faith, I'll show you what I can do. All right, let me just gauge your faith meter, see how you're doing. Mm-mm, not there, keep, keep working on it. That's not how it works. The passage says, God shows the people his deliverance, and then they have faith in him. That's good news to me. I hope that's good news to you. You see, the whole Christian life is learning to be what you already are. You are free, but we need to learn to live in light of that. This wasn't the last time that the Israelites would need God to deliver them, or the last time they would forget that he already did but God gets all of the glory in them and he gets all of the glory through them as he empowers them and as he empowers us to live in the deliverance that he's already provided. Maybe you're here this morning and you need God to remind you of the pattern of his deliverance, about the kindness of his deliverance. And right now you're trusting in God and you're hoping in him for your salvation Maybe God is doing like a tough work in your heart of like refining you and he's bringing you through some difficult things. And you need to remember that the pattern of God's salvation is that he does it kindly. He led the Israelites the long and hard way for their good so that they would see him, so that their hope in him would become immeasurably greater than it could possibly have been if he just led them the short way. Don't begrudge the long way. God's doing it for your good and for his glory. Maybe you need God to remind you of the faithfulness with which he saves and about how he proved his faithfulness in Jesus' coming and about how it proves that he continues to be faithful. And maybe you need God to remind you of the grace with which he saves and you need to stop trying to make yourself more deliverable You were saved when you were an enemy of God. There's nothing that you could do to like make you, you, at your worst, God saved you. If you're waiting to like clean yourself up, to think that that's when he'll save you, like you're missing the whole point. God wants to save you in your disaster and in your mess because he wants all the glory for doing it. So what happens is we get to live in the life and in the joy and respond gladly to God's unmerited and undeserved deliverance of us. That same pastor I referenced earlier said this this week, just, man, it just spoke to my heart. God's words to his people through Moses. He's saying, I love you in your pain, in your doubt, in your anxiety, in your fear. I, I know you at your very worst. I love you. Just be quiet. Watch me save you. Let me do it for you. 
Or maybe you need to remember this morning that God saved you sovereignly, that you can't add anything to it. Stop trying. Enjoy the gift that you've been given or take hold of the gift that you have been offered by which you only have to put your faith in. When we try to add stuff to God's saving, we just mess it up. Jesus plus nothing is everything we need. Or maybe this morning you need God to remind you of the pattern that he saves completely. His work is done. You are right with him. Nothing can change that. And so the question is, where do you need to walk in the freedom you've already been given instead of thinking you're still enslaved? The invitation is to ask God, God, show me. Show me that I'm free. Show me the truth about who you are, all that you've done. Soak it into my heart so that I would believe and live in light of it and trust it. Ask him to empower you to live in his finished and complete work for his glory and for your great joy. See, God's deliverance of his people was kind and it was faithful and it was gracious and it was sovereign and it was finished. It was complete. And his deliverance of his people in all these ways was done for one reason for his glory, to be made known to them and to be made known through them. God does everything he has ever done, is doing right now or will ever do for the purpose of the praise of his glory. And that is really, really good news for us. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for uh, this... uh, God, thanks for the, the, this, this account, God, of an unexplainable escape, one that only you could have planned, one that only that you could have executed, one that only you could have done. Thanks that in this story there are zero elements of the people's faithfulness, of their adding anything to it, so that we wouldn't even be slightly confused that it was just you that did it. God, we need you to fill our hearts. We need you to empower us. God, to live in the freedom that you've given, to live in the deliverance that you have. God, if there are those here this morning who have not yet laid hold of it, God, I pray that you just be like rooting out the lies in their heart that they just need to believe enough or that they need to clean themselves up enough or that they like aren't ready yet. God, I pray that you would just... God, they're just standing at the Red Sea waiting, waiting to walk through. God... God, by faith, would you call them through? God, for their great joy, so that they'd make much of you and celebrate you and and love and live for you. That we would as well, God. And for your glory. We pray all these things, God. Amen.